You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Well, good day to you all uh, from uh, ODI. My name is Andrew Shepherd, and I will be chairing our event today on the poverty monitoring in the context of COVID-19. Uh, a big welcome from myself. Um, we have a great lineup of speakers today. Uh, I'll give some details in a minute. And we also have a great online audience. Uh, I believe we have about 400 people registered for the event today including government officials, researchers, uh, people working for NGOs and international agencies. The objective of uh, our event today is really to alert decision makers and others to the situations faced by poor and vulnerable people in low and middle income countries faced with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so to the effects of uh, COVID-19 itself to the effects of the policy measures which governments are taking uh, to contain the spread of the virus uh, and to deal with other consequences. And also uh, to draw their attention to the need of, for different or supplementary short-term measures to minimize the, the, the negative effects. And secondly, uh, to launch our own uh, poverty monitoring in the context of COVID-19 initiative. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about this later on in the session, but this is an initiative to, again, present decision makers with information about what is happening in the lives of people at the bottom of the distribution in countries where poverty levels are high. And this initiative is currently being supported by HelpAge International, uh, and also some small internal ODI funds. Uh, and I, as I said, I will say a little bit more about it later. Now, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome a distinguished set of speakers today. First of all, Olivier de Schutter, who will make our keynote presentation. He is now UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, recently appointed to that job. And previously, he was Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food for a number of years, and I think his name will be well known to many of you. He is Professor of Law at the University of Louvain in Belgium. Uh, we have also with us um, the distinguished uh, Professor Sonal Desai, who is a demographer focused on economic and social inequalities. She is Professor of Sociology at the University of Maryland in the US. And she's also professor and center director at India's National Council of Applied Economic Research in New Delhi. We then have uh, Michael Rogan, who is the poverty and informal economy expert at WIGO, which again is an organization which will be familiar to many of you, Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. And this WIGO supports the organization of the working poor to gain voice, visibility, and recognition of informal workers. And uh, Mike will be uh, telling us more about uh, what they do uh, later in the session. We were hoping to have with us Margaret Kakande from the Ministry of Finance and Economic Planning in Uganda. Unfortunately, she's had a family bereavement, 
and we can do no more than uh, send our condolences, but we will very much miss her presence uh, on the panel. It would have been wonderful to have had a perspective from Uganda on these issues. So with uh, no further ado, I'd like to uh, move to uh, the substantial parts of our presentation. Um, and I would like to ask uh, Professor De Schutter uh, to use his global view um, and, and to tell us how he sees the, the vulnerabilities and the rights of the poor in this COVID-19 pandemic. And perhaps he can also comment on the short-term policy, uh, policy responses which he's observed uh, around the world. Professor De Schutter. Okay, thank you, uh, Andrew Shepard, for this introduction. And uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all those who are uh, able to follow this, uh, this exchange, which I look very much forward to. And I, I thank, of course, the Overseas Development Institute for its uh, leadership in alerting us to the uh, poverty impacts of the crisis we are facing and to explore uh, the solutions we may, we may wish to press for. Um, as, as many um, listeners will be aware, the impacts on extreme poverty in the world of this crisis will be extremely important. In fact, if we take as a measure of extreme poverty, the international poverty line of 1.90 US dollars per day in parity of purchasing power, the estimate is that the figure of people in extreme poverty will increase by 50 to 100 million, which um, means that we will shift from 630 million in extreme poverty today to, to 680 or 720 um, million in the world. Um, however, that is, of course, a very meager and unsatisfactory measure of poverty. And if we take a slightly more realistic uh, definition, which is a 3.20 US dollars per day um, measure, uh, the figures are much higher, up to 200 million more people may fall into poverty using that more realistic baseline. Um, now, that is a result, of course, of the economy um, falling in recession. And globally, the recession will be around 5% of the global GDP. But it's uh, striking that the impacts will be very different from country to country and from region to region. The contraction of the economy will be more important in rich countries that will see a, a contraction of 8 9% of the GDP and relatively smaller in developing countries where the contraction will be 2 3%. However, it is in developing countries that the impacts will be most important for four reasons. First, because, of course, the measure of um, wealth creation or destruction, uh, the measure of economic growth, um, must be related to demographic growth. And the more the population grows, the more you need economic growth in order to combat poverty. And in some developing countries, we still have quite high um, rates of demographic growth. For example, 2.6% in Nigeria, 3.1% in the DRC, and therefore you need more growth in order to um, um, uh, maintain the um, uh, living conditions of the population. So that's the first reason why um, the impacts will be felt um, uh, very significantly in the least um, developed countries. Secondly, perhaps more importantly, in these countries, governments do not really have the means to react adequately to the 
to the economic and, and social crisis. Globally, we know that more than 8,000 billion um, US dollars will be injected in the economy in various economic recovery plans, $8 trillion. That is a huge amount. But of course, it is primarily the rich countries that are capable of supporting the economic actors by um, supporting, in particular, the uh, companies that may otherwise fall bankrupt and providing unemployment benefits to the population, for example. So one figure that is telling is that the average rich country will dedicate almost 5% of its GDP to supporting economic recovery measures, whereas the average developing country will be able to dedicate only 1% of the GDP. And that is because many developing countries already face very high levels of debt, um, making the the reimbursement of this debt uh, extremely um, unsustainable. The debt was very high already before the crisis. And now, of course, the level of debt is, is even higher, not least because as a result of capital flight from developing countries, the local currencies lose value in comparison to the dollars, the euros, the yen in which the foreign debt is labeled. And so mechanically reimbursing the debt is, is more expensive uh, for these countries. Moreover, these countries very often face the consequences of a, um, a decrease in the price of raw materials, uh, minerals, oil, commodities on which they depend, and they have lost significant revenues from export as a result of the disruption of global supply chains. For example, in Bangladesh, I read that uh, some 500,000 um, uh, workers, mostly women, had been laid off as a result of many orders being cancelled by the big uh, garment companies uh, that have uh, not been able to maintain their level of demand that existed before the crisis. And that um, means a loss in, in export revenue for a country such as Bangladesh that is extremely um, significant. Um, thirdly, developing countries lose as a result of remittances going down from foreign migrant workers. And these remittances um, that have diminished by about 20% um, as a result of the crisis in comparison to last year um, mean for some countries that are highly dependent on these remittances, again, a significant, a significant loss, particularly for uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, Central Asia, and um, um, South Asia. Um, fourth and finally, um, and this, of course, is, is something that um, Mike Rogan shall describe in greater detail, in these developing countries, the informal sector uh, plays a very important role in the economy. It's globally about 61% of the global workforce that is in the informal sector. And um, very often, uh, workers in this sector um, have no access to social protection, do not have unemployment benefits after being laid off. And so, um, as a result, the poverty impacts shall be very significant. Now, not only shall developing countries be hit hardest in terms of the poverty impacts of the um, economic recession, but in addition, within each country, rich and poor alike, it is the poor who are suffering the most from the impacts um, of the crisis. And that is for um, perhaps uh, five reasons that explain why they are the most affected by the pandemic, and the most affected by the economic consequences. First, um, because of their home, home environment. Um, uh, people in poverty live in small, crowded dwellings. Um, they have often poor access to 
to sanitation and, and water, so they cannot easily follow the, um, the prescriptions from the WHO concerning um, uh, social distancing or regular washing of hands with soap and so on. So they are the most affected by the pandemic, the most at risk of contamination. And it is not surprising that all the data we have show that people in poverty, particularly belonging to certain uh, disadvantaged ethnic groups, um, are the most impacted by the sanitary crisis. Um, secondly, people in poverty often have a weaker immunity because of poor nutrition and because of certain comorbidities, for example, linked to obesity or diabetes. Um, thirdly, people in poverty very often are disproportionately represented in employment that is considered essential in times of lockdown. So they um, must go to work. And indeed, if they do not go to work, since very often the work they perform cannot be done at a dis distance in teleworking, they must choose between risking uh, contamination or losing their revenue. Um, fourthly, many people in, in, um, in poverty live in, uh, from informal work or from precarious um, employment, and they have minimal or no social protection, as I mentioned. And fifth and finally, they often do not have any health insurance or they do not have adequate access, physical access to healthcare centers. And that is one uh, fifth reason for these, uh, this group of the population being particularly vulnerable um, to the COVID-19 crisis. So what should be done? And I'd like to, to close by making four comments about the reactions of governments and what um, we should uh, be most attentive to in monitoring not only the impact on poverty of the crisis, but also, of course, the reactions of governments. So a first remark is that many countries have improved, strengthened their social protection in order to cushion the impacts of the economic crisis for the population. One count made by the International Labour Organization is that 168 countries in the world have extended existing social protection schemes or have developed new schemes to support um, the population. However, and this is an important caveat, um, uh, many of these um, interventions are short-term, are temporary, and shall not necessarily be maintained in the long run and lead to permanent standing social protection schemes um, being established. Um, and that is a problem not only for reasons of principle, because access to social security is a human right under the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. It's also a problem because um, um, if you have um, schemes that are based on, on charity that are not investing people with entitlements, they may claim before independent bodies using a rights-based approach, there is a big risk that the take-up will be um, uh, less important, that many people who normally should be reached by these social protection schemes shall not be reached in fact, because they are poorly informed, because they are afraid to request assistance, because they experience shame and so on. So the non-take-up of rights shall be more important is the social, if the social protection scheme is not um, designed in a rights-based fashion, investing people with entitlement. And as a result, the macroeconomic stabilization impacts of social protection schemes that are meant 
to operate in a contra-cyclical manner in terms of crisis, to stimulate demand and to ensure that uh, uh, families do not have to sell um, productive assets in particular, um, those impacts will be, will be lost. And, and the result may be that parents um, will bring people back, um, bring the children back from school, put them to work, for example, to, um, to, to cope with the crisis if they do not have a guaranteed access to social protection. So my first message is, it's important and encouraging to see that so many governments have extended social protection schemes, have strengthened them, or have invented new schemes. But it is troubling that in many cases, this is seen as a short-term measure, a temporary measure, having to last for the duration of the lockdowns and barely um, beyond that, which I think is a serious problem. Second message is that, um, we need to ensure that the programs put in place, the social protection schemes that have been strengthened, extended, or uh, put in place as a response to the crisis, also cover um, workers in the informal sector, about 1.6 billion workers worldwide, and workers in precarious um, uh, forms of employment, temporary short-term employment, um, uh, non-standard employment that concerns about um, 400 million workers in the world. So altogether, informal workers plus workers in non-standard forms of employment, these are 2 billion workers in the world who today are not adequately covered by unemployment uh, schemes, by, by social protection schemes, and um, very often the programs put in place by countries um, forget to, to address this category of workers. So it's extremely important that these workers are reached um, this can be done if governments coordinate well with informal workers' organizations, and I'm delighted that uh, uh, women in employment, in informal employment, uh, globalizing and organizing, we ago, is represented in this panel today to describe their important work in this regard. It's really important that associations of artisans, taxi drivers, street workers, that uh, domestic workers' unions, for example, um, interact with governments to make sure that that category of workers is indeed covered in the responses that governments have to protect the population from the crisis. Thirdly, we need, of course, to finance social protection. And these reactions of governments will only have a lasting impact on the reduction of poverty and will not lead to increased inequalities if the financing is equitable meaning that uh, the financing of social protection should be based on progressive income tax schemes, on taxing corporations that um, are able to, um, to continue to, to overcome um, the crisis, rather than, for example, financing social protection by increased um, uh, consumption taxes, increases in VAT um, rates in particular, which of course would disproportionately affect um, poor families. And so that's a third message. We, ne we need not only to focus on the response of governments in terms of social protection, but also where the money comes from that can finance these responses. And my fourth and final remark is that um, uh, developing countries, and particularly the least developed countries, may not have the fiscal space required in order to protect the population from the impacts of um, uh, poverty that shall increase as a result of the of the crisis. We need to support them. And there is now an important push 
by certain governments, by the international labor organization, by some others, to establish a new international financial facility, a global fund for social protection, in order to provide um, this financing to the least developed countries in particular, overcome, helping them to overcome the financing gap they may experience, which is equivalent to roughly 5% of their GDP on average. This is for the 134 developing countries who are unable today to protect the population adequately through social protection floors. We need to um, provide these countries with support. And I personally am very engaged in this um, struggle to establish this new mechanism, not only to support financially the efforts, but also to, to ensure countries who are investing in social protection for their population against the risks that social, that social protection will not be um, um, affordable for these countries in times of climatic disasters, economic shocks, or indeed pandemics such as this one. So these countries need to be insured against the risk that the social protection schemes they put in place shall not be affordable for them by a reinsurance mechanism we could establish at the global level, and that would be part of the functions such a global fund could um, fulfill. And with this, I would like to, to close and look forward, of course, to our discussion. Thank you, Andrew, for leading us. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much, Olivia. Olivia. Um, that was uh, very comprehensive and also inspiring, I think, uh, in terms of vision uh, towards the end, uh, and a lot to get engaged with there. Um, I would just like to point out that our audience, anybody who is participating, is, should feel free to put questions uh, into uh, your chat boxes. And some of these, at least, <laughs> there are already many questions coming through, but some of these, at least, uh, I will relay to, to the panel. I will be a little bit selective about that. Um, Olivier, could I just ask you one supplementary question before we move on uh, to Sonal Desai? Um, you were previously the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Food uh, and the Right to Food, and you had many years of experience there. Uh, and I just wonder whether there are some significant lessons from that experience which you can bring uh, to the current context, where WFP, the World Food Programme, has already claimed that there will be many more people going hungry as a result of uh, COVID-19 and the, the policy responses to it. Um, I, I wonder if we could join up your two roles uh, a little bit. Common thread is the need to uh, develop resilience, even if this is at the expense of efficiency. In food supply chains, we've been emphasizing the need for global supply chains to develop, for countries to specialize, for the international division of labor to maximize the efficient use of, of resources uh, that we need to produce food. But we've forgotten to equip countries, regions, um, to diversify their food economies in order to be resistant, resilient in the face of shocks that per definition are unpredictable. And I would say that it is very much the same here. We are facing uh, more globally in terms of social protection. It may seem as a cost in the short term to protect people from, um, um, from, from poverty by unemployment benefit, child allowances, access to healthcare, um, um, old age, uh, pension, and so on. But it is a, a crucial investment uh, that a country can make that actually 
is um, not money that is uh, spent. It is money that is invested for human capital to be built and for um, uh, the country to be much more resilient vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the shocks that it may experience. By definition, um, we cannot predict all the future shocks that shall occur, but building robust social protection schemes is the best way to um, to cushion these shocks once they once they arrive. And I am struck, like we all are, I believe, by how improvised, in many ways, the reaction of country of countries has been to this uh, current crisis. And um, thank you very much, Olivier. Uh, it, I'd like just to bring one question from the audience uh, in straight away, um, and maybe uh, I think this is a really good uh, question. You've pointed out quite correctly that many people in the informal economy uh, don't have access to social protection. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, how we can make progress on that issue um, when you know the schemes that are available in many cases, certainly the social security schemes are linked with formal sector employment. The world is increasingly going informal in terms of employment patterns. And I just wondered if you could expand a little bit on some of the practicalities involved in reaching the informal sector with social protection. Yes, I think uh, it's, a, it's a real challenge and we should not uh, forget the need to gradually bring these workers from the informal sector into the the, the, the formal um, economy. But um, in the meantime, there are many ways in which these workers can be identified and, uh, and supported um, in order for their families uh, not to have to suffer a sudden um, loss of income. And uh, that can be done by teaming with um, the associations of informal workers that exist in in many parts of the world, in many countries and in many sectors, um, who can have, uh, have access to these workers and, um, and can ensure that they are covered by these, um, by these schemes. Um, basically, I would say that it's um, um, a human right that all workers um, should have a right to, to have access to social security. And uh, we should not um, allow um, the fact that their employers have not declared them or that they are self-employed and and have not been registered, um, that is not um, uh, an excuse for allowing them to, to fall into, into poverty. So I, I look forward to the remarks of Mike Rogan, who I think has been working a lot on this, on this topic for Weagle. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, we'll probably come back to this issue. Thank you to Sunil Kumar for uh, putting the, the question uh, into the chat. And thank you for others who are also putting other questions into the, the chat. Um, uh, just uh, before we go to Sonal, I just wanted to add a couple of other comments. I mean, we know from our work on poverty dynamics that ill health can be a great impoverisher. You may have to pay for treatment, you lose uh, work opportunities, there may be medium and long-term consequences in terms of disabilities and, and so on. Um, and. Uh, yeah, so here we have a situation in which we have the impact of the virus uh, in a, a virus in uh, we've seen the situation as it's developed in China, in South Korea, in Europe and the US. Um, but now we have the expansion in other countries in Asia and in Latin America and somewhat behind uh, that curve in Africa. Now, these are situations in which the demography is different. 
nutritional status, as Olivier has pointed out, is uh, quite different to that in those uh, other countries that I mentioned. Uh, and the policy responses, you know, as Olivier, uh, as Olivier has, has pointed out, may not, may not work. So I think this is something that we should bear in mind. And a second thing that we should bear in mind is that, uh, and I think, again, Olivier hinted at this, uh, for many countries, but also for many individuals, a crisis like this may come on top of other crises. And again, we know from our poverty dynamics work that it's when people experience multiple crises, either in sequence or at the same time, that uh, this can be very impoverishing and put people into poverty in the long term. So very long term consequences from which they find it difficult to recover. But um, Sonal, coming to you, um, could you please tell us about people's vulnerability to COVID-19? and also to the to the virus itself and to the policy responses so far, with a focus particularly on India. And I know that you've been doing some work in Delhi. You've been doing some telephone surveys recently. It would be very interesting to hear about those uh, and also to reflect on what the policymakers in India should be thinking about now as the, the virus is really beginning to take a hold, uh, as we've seen in the international news. Sonal, over to you for your contribution. Thank you. You know, before I start talking about COVID, let me just remind us of where India has been over the last 10 years. Clearly, India has experienced a pretty strong economic growth in early part of uh, the century. Uh, poverty was going down. But at the same time, as we have looked at poverty dynamics, one of the things we found was that as poverty was going down, the vulnerability was increasing for the people who were just moving out of poverty. So it was very easy for people to fall back into poverty uh, whenever there was any kind of a crisis, such as the health shock, loss of job, and so on. So some of our work in early 2010-2012 showed that 40% of the people in poverty were actually not poor eight years ago. They had fallen into poverty because of some crisis. So come back fast forward to the COVID-19. And what I think we are observing is that very strong potential for tremendous downward mobility for these people who had just emerged out of poverty. So one of the things that we have been doing is we have been doing telephone surveys of people uh, around Delhi national capital uh, area region, which actually includes quite a few rural areas in nearby states, as well as the urban areas in Delhi and surrounding towns. And what we have been finding is that about 85% of our respondents say that their incomes went down uh, right after the lockdown was implemented. Now, just to remind ourselves, in India, um, the Prime Minister declared lockdown on 24th of March with a three-hour notice. What it did was that it sort of suddenly stopped the wheels of the economy and it affected a large number of people. Now, people who are government employees, okay, people who are uh, university professors, people who are in formal sector jobs could either work from home or be on leave and still get paid but it's the people who couldn't have that sort of an access who were in the big trouble. So the people who sort of told us as uh, having suffered great uh, economic downward mobility or um, income losses 
work, informal sector workers who were working on daily wages. So for example, informal sector workers who are working on daily wages usually gather around a particular gathering place from which employers will come and hire 10 laborers, 15 laborers. And suddenly you can't gather at those places. The uh, street corner where gathering was happening, people are not allowed to gather. The employer is not allowed to drive. And so those people suddenly don't have a job. Um, shopkeepers who were selling items like, you know, socks and retail clothing, people who were selling uh, shoes, all of a sudden these shops were closed. They couldn't work. They couldn't get the income. Their daily laborers who were working for them or even salaried employees were laid off. Some of the big sufferers were people who were working as a domestic help in a variety of homes. Uh, although there was a strong extortion from the government to keep paying these people, many of these people did not get paid. So what we find is that these are people who are not only in the informal sector, there are also people who are working in formal sector in an informal job whose contracts are short term, whom we would sort of often think of as gig economy workers, or at least in modern parlance, we would call them gig economy workers. Uh, these are sort of people under informal contracts who don't get paid. What we found was also that even when we think of people as sort of regular salaried workers, only 60% of those actually got paid during the lockdown period. The rest were not paid or laid off. So the downward mobility is extremely high. It is occurring in variety of occupations. Uh, we can say informal sector workers, and yes, it encompasses a large sector of India, but it's not only just informal sector workers, it's people who are also employed in formal labor market, but with very short term contracts or what we might call sort of informal workers in the formal labor market uh, who are also um, not getting paid. So the income loss is substantial. Now, one of the problems is, of course, that most of these people are living on a day to day kind of a situation where it's very difficult for them to um, accumulate savings. It's also difficult for them to sort of uh, acquire daily necessities. So people who have low incomes buy their food day to day or week to week. One of the things that happened was that initial part of the lockdown led to food shortages and roughly about 30% of the respondents in the early part of our survey said that they couldn't purchase some of the necessities that they needed. In the later part of the survey, they found that uh, now supply chains were sort of operating somewhat better, but the prices were going up. So again, a fairly large percentage of our respondents, uh, over 35%, said that they had experienced price increase in food prices, in vegetable prices, milk prices, and so on. Now, these are the, not the people who are able to store up for a month or two. So they have to buy in the open market with whatever low prices that they can. Okay. or so whatever high prices that they have to pay. And consequently, what we have is we have income shock and you have rising prices for some of the necessities. 
So the two things combined make people highly vulnerable. And I think it kind of brings me to some of the Olivier's points about um, food security, that these are the people who are sort of living in the most precarious situation with very low levels of food security. Now, Ben, you had asked me to talk a little bit about government response. Okay, And this is actually very interesting. Um, I do think that Indian government actually went into this with some forethought on some of the social protection measures. And one of the most interesting part of it was that over the last 10 years, some social protection measures have been put in place, which made some of these um, subsidies uh, kind of quick and easy to deliver. So, for example, India had put in place a more or less universal program around food security for which about two thirds of India was um, entitled to some of the lowest price food that they could get, virtually free food. And what the government did was they said, OK, people who have this access to these food security measures now will be able to double their allowance and hence be able to get much more food than they would have been able to get otherwise. And this food did reach quite a significant chunk of our respondents. Um, some of the measures around biometric identification, zero bank balance, bank accounts had been put in place. So the government actually knew the bank accounts of individuals. They had a, a system through which they could immediately get some of the cash into people's bank accounts. This also happened. So in some sense, the prior preparation around social registries, around set, putting in place um, social security me uh, measures paid off and that some of the subsidies they were able to get into people's hands relatively quickly within the first month of lockdown. Nonetheless, it was not perfect and some of the people were left out. And these are the people who are still suffering and actually creating some of the crises that newspapers are referring to right now. Thank you. Andrew is muted. Uh, yes, oh, the hazard of uh, muting your microphone is that then you forget, I'm sorry. Um, I just wanted to follow up uh, your last point. That was very interesting, and it's great to have some fresh results from uh, from the field based on completely up-to-date um, survey data. Um, uh, but you said that some people are left out, and we've had a lot uh, of um, news from India about migrants. Mm -hmm. I was wondering uh, if you could say something about the plight of migrants and whether their situation today following uh, the re somewhat relaxation of the lockdown, the provision of uh, trains to enable them to get transport, whether that, that situation has improved at all or whether it has also, in a sense, exported the problem from Delhi to other places and whether those other places, or Delhi and other metropolitan cities, uh, whether those other places are well placed to uh, cope with that. You know, this is a it, it, this is a very strange situation in some ways. Historically, uh, Indian policy has assumed, and rightly so, that much of the poverty is located in rural areas, and so social protection measures were always better developed for rural uh, population than for the urban population. 
So all the subsidies that I just mentioned, they were particularly directed towards the rural population. So, you know, 36% of the rural households received cash transfers, whereas only 20% of the urban residents did. 51% um, of the res uh, rural residents received um, the food subsidies and extra food rations, whereas uh, only about 40% of the urban residents did. And even here in the urban area, people who were left out were people who were migrants because they did not have a domiciliary certificate. They did not have all their residential documentation set in their place of migration. So they were not entitled to receive these benefits. And consequently, now, I think for many of uh, India's migration stream, uh, a lot of people tend to leave their wife and children behind in rural areas when they migrate to the cities to work, particularly given the high price of um, um, real estate in the US, uh, in uh, uh, urban India, where it was very hard for them to find housing. And there were, you know, 20 people living to a room. So one of the first things that they did was they decided they will go back home to ride out the crisis. Unfortunately, transportation was stopped. Uh, they could not very easily get out. And many people just started walking, taking whatever form of transportation they could, which essentially left them stranded because their home states were not ready and willing to receive them for the fear of their bringing in the disease. And so many of these people were sort of left in no man's land within um, the country. There are pictures of bridges where people are trying to cross over from Delhi into the nearby state Uttar Pradesh and they're not allowed to go in. So many of them had to sort of quarantined in special places where uh, services not very, were not very good. It was very difficult for them to sort of get in touch with their families. And it just created this humanitarian crisis that no one was prepared for. Okay. Uh, Increasingly, things have become sort of more relaxed. There is a greater transportation available. But nonetheless, what we are seeing is that many people are still sort of worrying about, you know, carrying diseases back to their hometowns. Hometowns and villages have actually set up quarantines areas within the schools so that people can be quarantined there before they can actually return back home. Um, so I think it, it still is a very fluid situation. It's also a situation which of tremendous economic distress because one of the big component of the reduction in rural poverty was the remittances from these workers who were coming back uh, or who had migrated to the cities and were sending money. Now that they are not able to send the money back, uh, there is suddenly a stoppage of remittances. One other very interesting thing that we found in some of our surveys was that some of the agricultural laborers in uh, rural areas said that all of a sudden they don't have work because the households who were employing them or the farmers who were employing them often had family members who were working in the cities. Now they have come back. They have started sort of working into agriculture. So the household labor has increased in agriculture and suddenly there are no jobs for the agricultural workers. Mm. So we have this domino effect that is likely to be very pervasive. What happens going forward a few months down the line is still very unclear. I suspect the scarring 
is going to take a while for many of these workers to return back to the cities. I do not know how many will come back. I do not know whether their landlords will be willing to rent them the places again. Uh, so it's just going to be a very difficult situation that's at this point hard to fathom where we go next. Thank you, Sonal. I think there are many unknowns uh, in this situation. And I mean, this is a new situation for everybody around the world experiencing it. Um, so there is a lot of work to do, in a sense, to, to find out, to keep finding out what is going on. And I was wondering, Sonal, if you could just say something. A question has come in uh, online about the kind of data that we need to monitor uh, this situation, especially the situation of people who uh, are really vulnerable uh, in this context? You know, it, it never has world faced a situation where we need data more, and never has there been a situation where it is harder to collect data. Okay? Uh, we cannot get to the communities we need to reach to because of the social distancing and disease-related issues. Uh, we do not want to send our field workers into the homes where they might be carrying the disease. So it's been very difficult to collect data. What we have been doing is we've been working, um, uh, trying to collect data via telephones. We have been trying to work with community organizations to see how we can get some data from them. But I think this is going to be a situation where the research community is going to have to become very, very creative. One of the things that made it possible for us to do some of this data collection is the fact that we had longitudinal data collection already in the field. We knew who we needed to talk to. We had the phone numbers. We knew uh, people who were vulnerable who we needed to reach out to. So I think what we are going to need is sort of a creativity which says, OK, let's take the on the ground, ongoing longitudinal data collection and then let's try and divide, uh, repurpose it in a way so that we can sort of first reach out to the people we need to reach to to give us immediate data for immediate monitoring, but also to provide us data over a long term so that we can be prepared for future crises of the same time where we have a profile of people who are vulnerable. We have a profile of systems in which uh, social security benefits are being delivered and received or not being received. I also think, though, that this is going to be a sort of a long term um, situation where we actually need to understand what happened during the crisis. Did the kids who needed immunization receive immunization? Did people who had other health emergencies, such as diabetes, uh, heart attack, uh, other emergencies were able to receive care or not? What is the long-term impact of some of these um, vulnerabilities and disenfranchisement? So I think we will need to figure out creatively how do we collect data for today and how do we collect data for a longer term, better understanding and better preparedness uh, for the future crises that surely the world will be facing uh, over time, perhaps, hopefully, never of this magnitude. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sonal. Um, before coming to Michael, uh, that just gives me an opportunity to mention that uh, our poverty monitoring initiative uh, is making a start uh, on the kind of uh, investigations that you are talking about in uh, working with partners in Kenya and Nepal. 
We hope to work in up to 20 countries, which would include India with your collaboration, Sonal, if we can uh, find the resources to enable this to happen. And the idea here is to present real-time information gathered from households who have previously been interviewed, as you mentioned, you know, whether it's longitudinal data or a previous survey, uh, and then also to talk to key informants, both at local and national levels, and also to do any rapid data analysis uh, where there are relevant surveys, like the ones that you've been uh, involved in in Delhi. Um, I would be very interested to hear also from Michael and uh, eventually Olivier as to what else you feel such an initiative could, uh, could accomplish and should focus on. Um, but, that, uh, but that was a very nice uh, interaction. Thank you, Sonal. And we'll please stay with us and we'll be coming back to you. There are more questions coming through, which I will relay to you in a moment. But before that, let's hear from Mike. Um, we've heard quite a bit already about people involved in precarious work and the informal economy, the neglect of urban, uh, urban vulnerable groups, if you like, in, in social policy, uh, particularly in social protection, the bias towards uh, rural, uh, the rural extreme poor, if you like. Um, and I just wondered if you could give us some reflections on, on these kind of issues from uh, from your perspective, uh, there seems to be quite a lot of awareness of the issue um, of uh, the, the uh, if you like, this the, the, the situation that the informal economy workers find themselves in, including uh, perhaps women. But please do give us uh, your insights and also tell us what you feel the short term policy responses can be. Great, thank you. <clears throat> and thanks very much for the uh, organizing the webinar and, and inviting me to be uh, a part of it. I think this is a this is a really important conversation. And I, and I think you're right. And um, we've really noticed it, at WeGo that uh, the informal economy is is getting a lot of attention in, in this particular crisis. And I, I think it's because uh, the COVID crisis has exposed fault lines in national and global labor markets that have been there for quite some time. Uh, but are coming out in, uh, in in really stark ways in this current crisis. And if I may say for a moment, um, uh, most of the insights that I'll be sharing with you today uh, come from some research. We we referred to it as a rapid re appraisal of the effects of the of the epidemic on on groups of informal workers um, that was conducted by WeGo in 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 March and April, just to try and answer some of these questions. Um, and and I think that's right. Um, we know the impact is large on the informal economy, but we don't yet fully understand the mechanisms and the ways in which uh, the crisis is impacting on workers and, and research is critical. As the second phase of our own research, we're undertaking a, a survey and a series of qualitative studies in 12 cities across 10 countries uh, around the world, also longitudinal data, because that really is the best way to understand uh, the nature of the impact of this particular crisis. Um, but I think the other thing that's that's made the um, uh, the informal economy stand out, as, as some of the other speakers have pointed out, is that most workers in the world are informal, and as we've said, uh, this this refers to a lack of of legal and and social protection. But in this particular crisis, uh, another feature of informal employment is no work and equals no pay, uh, and that puts households under an incredible strain. Um, just to give one example, not only is 61% uh, of all global employment informal, but 
uh, up to 90% in, in developing countries. And if you, if you think about it, that means that this crisis has had uh, such a profound impact on, on household, households that depend on, on these earnings. Uh, before the crisis in sub-Saharan Africa, where, where I live, 39% uh, of the workforce was below the dollar a day poverty line and 62% under the $2 a day uh, poverty line, which means that uh, there was likely very little cushion for this type of shock uh, in terms of households that depend on the informal economy, um, all of which uh, suggests that uh, to attack or approach the, the problem of, of global poverty, especially in light of this crisis, we have to understand the informal economy and how earnings are impacted as a result of a crisis like this. Um, something that came out of the, the rapid appraisal that, that WeGo conducted is, um, is a concept that, that kind of helps us understand it, I think, a bit more. And that's um, the nature of this crisis is a, is a triple threat to informal workers. It's, it's a health crisis um, in the sense that it's, uh, it impacts workers' uh, health the same way it does others except that informal workers are often more vulnerable uh, due to their socioeconomic status, as well as the type of work they do uh, to the health impacts of the crisis. It's certainly an economic crisis, which we've been discussing uh, so far in the, in the webinar. Uh, and much of the early evidence we have from uh, organizations such as UNU Wider, the ILO, suggests that the impacts of the, the economic impacts are, are harsher on the lower income households and on households that rely on uh, informal employment for their for their earnings. And then the third uh, aspect of it is that it's a care crisis as well. Uh, without the uh, additional support of, of childcare, it means that many workers are having to face uh, particularly tough decisions about their livelihoods uh, and taking care of their families and children and, and other aspects of their, of their care responsibilities. Uh, this all sort of translates then into uh, what is particularly difficult when you don't have legal or social protection uh, associated with your employment. And that's the false choice of trying to stay safe and isolate from the, the, the effects of the pandemic or feeding your households. And, and the suggestion that we would make is no one should be in a position to have to choose between staying safe from a pandemic and, and then feeding their household. But that's a particular feature of the informal economy, which as we've said is most of the, the workforce in the world, but particularly uh, in, in developing countries. Um, if I could just share four insights that, that we gained from the rapid appraisal um, in terms of ways that this particular crisis impacts on uh, informal workers. Uh, the first is through an inability to access markets. Uh, because of the nature of the work, if you think of street vendors, uh, waste pickers, domestic workers around the world, uh, their movement or access to their workplaces is, is in many places been, been banned outright. Um, so workers are uh, essentially cut off from the markets that provide their, their livelihoods. Uh, even those workers who have been allowed to work or have been uh, identified as essential workers have experienced decreased demand. And this probably isn't surprising. Um, if you think of domestic workers, for example, uh, in many countries, including the one um, uh, where I live here in South Africa, domestic workers have not been allowed to work during the, the, the regulations to, to mitigate the effects of the pandemic, meaning that many have simply seen their, uh, their earnings cut off altogether. Um, also, if for, for those workers who have been able to continue with their livelihoods, uh, many of the, the costs of input into their employment have been shifted onto them. Uh, in many cities around the, the developing world, uh, the rising cost of transport has been borne by workers trying to get to their, their places of work. 
uh, and all of the costs associated with keeping yourself safe, um, sanitation, hand sanitizer, uh, PPE, masks, um, any sort of protective equipment to keep themselves during, safe during the, the epidemic has come out of their own earnings. Uh, and, and these costs have been shifted directly onto informal workers in, uh, in, in many places in the world. And then, as I mentioned, as the, the third part of the, um, the, the triple threat uh, faced by informal workers, there's particularly an increased care burden, which falls disproportionately on, on women. Um, as schools close in, in, in many contexts, uh, women workers in particular are finding it difficult to balance uh, care and paid work, which, which has an obvious uh, negative impact on, on earnings as well. Um, and if I have just another moment to, to think about what this means for the, the topic that we're addressing today, which is um, uh, tracking poverty in this, in this um, extraordinary time, um, we've seen several uh, alarming predictions from, uh, from the typical uh, sort of purveyors of, of, of poverty statistics about what's going to happen to global poverty. One of the alarming ones that's come out recently is that uh, this particular crisis could set us back 30 years in, in our agenda towards uh, uh, poverty reduction. And I think it's useful to think, uh, to keep that link between informal work and, and poverty. Uh, so, for example, the ILO's projection suggests that there'll be up to 35 million new working poor uh, uh, people around the world or in developing countries in particular uh, this year uh, compared with, with estimates from last year, suggesting that a lot of the alarming statistics we see about the, the, the very likely rise in global poverty will be driven by uh, working poverty and, and the vast majority of that will, will almost certainly be in the informal economies around uh, the developing world. Mike, thank you very much. That's um, that's a really good uh, exposition of the the issues facing the informal economy. Um, a, a couple of questions coming in online, um, which I'd like to turn to as as our time begins to um, disappear. And one of them is about uh, for Mike, really, or if Mike, you you might be able to have some reflections on this. Obviously. Um, there's a lot of attention on COVID-19 and on risk policy responses to COVID-19. Um, and this is potentially at the, at the expense of giving attention, policymakers' attention to the long-term investments necessary for development. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, in the context of the focus on the inf informal economy, how one can think of reconciling these. And the particular suggestion coming in online is that if you if you could develop public work schemes, and perhaps this would need to be in new contexts uh, so that the informal, uh, the urban informal economy can also benefit from them. Typically, public work schemes are located in rural areas. That might be one way of trying to reconcile these, uh, these um, different uh, you know, short-term and long-term uh, issues. I don't know if you have any reflection on that, Mike. I mean... Yeah, thanks. Um... You know, I think that's one of the the key issues in this particular moment. Um, uh, you could, one could take an optimistic view that um, uh, such a crisis like this actually invites us to think about the the longer term and 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 what we've discovered about the failures of the of the current um, system, whether it's in terms of the way we organize our societies, economies, and and labor markets. Uh, of course, the pessimistic view is we can we can become too caught up in uh, addressing the short-term impact and forget about the uh, the bigger picture. 
I, I prefer to take the, the optimistic view and uh, take this current crisis as an invitation uh, to think about what we want uh, out of the longer term. I've noticed that many NGOs, uh, government departments, funders are, are using this moment to uh, to rethink some of the, the fundamentals of their of their platforms or their their agendas. In Uyghur, we've been thinking uh, along these lines in terms of three R's. Uh, the first is relief, uh, the second is resilience, and the third is recovery. And this is not to suggest that this is a linear process or that one necessarily follows the other. Uh, and, and they certainly uh, sort of impact on, on one another. But there's certainly a moment for relief. Uh, we, we're facing a humanitarian crisis, as we've been discussing in this webinar. Many households have lost their livelihoods uh, almost overnight and have been displaced. So there's certainly uh, a huge focus on relief, and, and there should be. Uh, this, this is possibly the largest humanitarian crisis in, in, in generations. Um, but in terms of long-term uh, picture, there's an opportunity to think about what resilience means, uh, both within our current, um, uh, the way our societies and economies are currently organized, uh, but also what it means in terms of the way they should be uh, organized. And I have been fairly uh, encouraged to see that there are certainly some creative approaches, um, particularly in relation to uh, social protection. Um, what does it mean when the vast majority of people who uh, work for a living aren't able to rely on any type of social protection or savings? Uh, it certainly means we need to think of a slightly uh, different system in order to ensure that we can build resilience to these types of shocks. It may not be a, um, a health shock next time. It could be something uh, completely different. But there's certainly an invitation here to think um, uh, longer term. So I've seen many debates cropping up about uh, uh, the evaluation between uh, targeted measures of social protection uh, versus more universal measures, uh, and what this means in terms of contexts uh, that have had these universal measure universal measures in place, and what we can learn in places that uh, don't have these. I've seen a number of creative proposals for expanding the fiscal space uh, to improve uh, funds for social protection. Some of this is related to uh, uh, getting fair tax systems uh, at the national level in place. Uh, other creative measures look at engaging the private sector to ensure that there are funds for uh, this type of social protection, particularly in contexts where uh, uh, informal workers, and I'm thinking particularly of home-based workers and, and street vendors, are actually intimately involved with the value chains of, uh, of large multinational companies. They're the end points, the end distribution point for many private sector uh, goods and, and services. So there's a, there's a lot of space for creativity um, and rethinking what we want out of social protection, um, uh, certainly. And expanded and com community-based public work programs and uh, employment guarantee programs are, are all a part of that. But I hope what we take out of this is a, is a more optimistic view, which is uh, taking the opportunity uh, to look at what hasn't worked in, in the light of a crisis and, and to revising as, as we go forward in terms of making sure uh, labor markets and social protections are, are much fair. Thank you very much, Mike. That's a, a, a really good uh, response. Um, we've got quite a lot of other questions coming in online, and I'd just like to, yes, Olivier, do you want to, do you want to join in there? Thank you, Andrew, uh, and, and apologies. I'd like to react to the question which was just answered excellently by, by Mike to, to maybe make one um, additional point, and I thank uh, 
Giovanni Valencisi from UNCTAD for raising this issue of the short-term responses to the crisis and the long-term preoccupation uh, for investment that uh, moves us in the right direction. I think what you are going to see in the next few months is a big debate between either stimulating economic growth at all costs or uh, moving towards um, um, austerity programs in order to reduce the exposure of countries uh, to um, unsustainable levels of public debt. Um, and that is going to be the debate probably uh, very analogous to the one we had in 2008, 2010. Yeah. I think it would be a very important, uh, a very significant and regrettable mistake to see this in those terms. Instead, there is, a, I think, a third way we must really explore, which consists in saying that any investments we make to combat the crisis and to stimulate economic recovery must put the green transition at its heart. And that means, for example, that um, we should focus on the reduction of inequalities because if you are um, in a more equal society, you would need much less economic growth in order to reduce poverty. And thus the ecological impact of your stimulus plan will be much less significant. Also, we can invest in um, types of uh, uh, sectors and, and uh, for example, in the production of renewable energies, in the, in the recycling economy, uh, in, the, um, in the development of infrastructure for public transport and so on, that can be very labor intensive, provide employment opportunities to people with relatively low levels of qualification, and at the same time contribute to the green transition, the transition to a low carbon and biodiverse economy. So I think it's, it's extremely important um, to, to keep in mind the integrated program of the SDGs and, and not to see this as a, as a debate simply be, between more growth or, or less growth. And I, I think that would be impoverishing the debate uh, uh, in, in a way that would be very damaging. Thank you, Olivia. I couldn't agree more. Um, a couple of uh, specific issues have come uh, in the light of what you just said about uh, balancing economic growth and, and austerity. Um, what, one question uh, is, you know, is in this context, to what extent is universal basic income part of the answer? And another questioner who I think you, you might be able to interact with is asking whether local food produ production can be a help to uh, recovery. And just as a footnote to that second one, uh, another questioner is asking, you know, what to do if you're in touch with communities who have no food? What can be done? I'm sorry to put those difficult questions to you, but um, if you could have a go at any of them, it would be great, Olivier. Well, I'm sure my, my, my colleagues have many things to say on these questions too, but let me try to, to provide some, uh, some remarks. First, I, I think it's, um, um, it, it's generally um, a, a reaction we've seen in this crisis that um, the, um, the development of long supply chains in food systems, the specialization of countries and, region, and regions into a narrow range of, of, of productions, is a source of fragility of liability. And yes, there is a strong push for relocalizing, re-territorializing food systems um, and to prioritize diversity of production within a single territory as a source of resilience. And so I think we need to move to, um, uh, to, the, to the realization that investing in local food systems is the best way to protect ourselves from future shocks 
the disruption of global supply chains um, or the um, closure of borders, making it impossible for farm workers to travel. As, as you know, in many rich countries, for example, um, a large part of the agrarian economy depends on seasonal migrant workers that, that travel from, from certain countries for three or four months per year. And, and, and I think this has proven to be a, a very fragile system. So we'll see a push for relocalized food systems. And I think that's a good thing for the local economy, for the quality of nutrition, for agronomic reasons too, um, we will see these um, local solutions grow. Now, this is, of course, not an answer to the, to the question of what to do when in times of lockdown, um, people cannot even travel to fetch the food that is, for example, distributed in urban centers and cannot grow the food themselves. That is one major reason why the World Food Programme is now alerting us to the risk of a a new pandemics, which is a, a hunger pandemics. And they estimate that the restrictions to freedom of movement um, imposed, for example, in the Sahel region will have a significant impact in, in increasing the number of people who will need to be provided with food aid um, in the next few months. That is extremely troubling. And it is um, um, the, the, the result of um, um, measures that um, have not taken into account uh, the need for uh, populations to be supported where they are um, in rural areas where it's um, um, uh, where it's uh, sometimes uh, indeed uh, difficult to grow food without traveling from one place to another or indeed to market the food that you produce traveling to markets so that will be a, a very major um, challenge to face for those regions um, thank you Olivier. i jump in here uh, andrew yes please do i was i was so now before you do i was also going to ask you to reflect on uh, something else which has come up in the chat um which is a couple of things actually one is uh, what do we know at the moment about uh, how this pandemic and the policy responses have affected particular groups of the population? So, for example, people with disabilities, uh, older people, we know that older people are more, um, uh, seem to be more uh, affected by the virus. Uh, what do we know about that in India, for example? Uh, and women and children. Um, any any uh, light you can shed on those issues would be very welcome, I think, by some of our listeners. Um, and secondly, a more technical issue. You were talking a lot about phone telephone surveys uh, and the use of longitudinal data and so on. But uh, one of our partners uh, from Cambodia has raised the issue that, um, you know, is it possible to rely on this type of data when uh, access to mobile phones is quite varied? and when people change their phone numbers from time to time. And so, I mean, there are some kind of little problems in, in uh, this, uh, the, the, the reliance on phone surveys. But I think the first question is perhaps the, the more important one for the whole audience. Um, let me actually respond to uh, the universal versus targeted um, income and kind of tie it into the vulnerable groups. You know, I one of the biggest things that happened for me personally as a part of sort of uh, trying to understand the COVID-related implications is that I actually changed from being a big proponent of targeted uh, uh, the subsidies and welfare programs to more universal programs. 
Okay. I think one of the things that I sort of realized was that historically, I used to think that the universal basic income could never be large enough to bring anybody really out of poverty. And hence, it could only be sort of a band-aid. Okay. What I now realize is that in some ways, um, it, it provides us with a system of getting benefits quickly to people which we may not have otherwise. And hence, putting in something in place where everybody has access, and then you can tweak it to affect, uh, to address specifically affected groups of people, is possible. If you don't have a system in place to begin with, it's it's just impossible to get any kind of benefits out to people in time where you want to provide a relief. Okay, so it, it, that that is actually a big um, yeah, sort of something in favor of a universal program, and that particularly applies to specifically vulnerable groups. So, for example, what are we seeing at the moment? We are seeing that the groups which are particularly vulnerable are people located in certain occupations, which we have talked a lot about, the informal workers. But also, I think that these are people who, for example, women. Okay, One of the things that we have been finding is that women tend to be in the type of wage employment where they will not be covered during the time of lockdown. Uh, government service, uh, which covers most of its workers during the lockdown, is actually highly masculine. Uh, women tend to work as um, shop clerk, uh, you know, salespeople, shop clerks, domestic service, uh, who may be more likely to be left out. The older population, which uh, relies particularly on remittance incomes, Okay. may have major issues um, in terms of uh, declining income, uh, not being able to go out to buy food and receive um, food security allowances. So putting in place systems which can be uh, uh, applicable to everyone, but then can be tweaked to sort of uh, cover some of the more uh, disadvantaged populations would be something we need to think about over the coming years, even as the crisis passes. Uh, and to come back on the phone surveys, oh, it's so disappointing actually to be doing phone surveys. I would much rather be able to talk to people face to face, try to understand what's going on. Even asking questions on phone surveys is quite uh, unsatisfying. And yet, at this point in time, that's the only thing we are able to do. So it seems to me that if you are in a situation where uh, phone surveys are unreliable, um, uh, where numbers are sort of being flipped, I think the best we can do is to say that, look, we are going to cover the population we can cover, but we need to have some other data which tells us how selective this population is so that we can make some statistical adjustments. It's not ideal, but then we are not living in an ideal world today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sonal. Uh, we're unfortunately coming very close to the end of our allotted time for this uh, event. Um, but the questions have been coming in thick and fast, and thank you for those. Uh, it's led to a very good discussion. Um, there's just one question that I haven't been able to put to the panel, uh, which is, um, do you think that this is going to lead to a substantial reversal of progress, particularly in middle-income countries? Uh, and progress on poverty uh, in more generally. Um, 
And I think from our discussion today, the likelihood is that it is going to lead to a substantial reversal of progress. The question is more whether it is in the short term or medium term or long term. And I think those, the answers to those questions will depend on the, the, the policy responses which are still developing and, and to come uh, partly and, and the humanitarian response and so on that uh, people have been talking about. Now, um, just before we end, I would like to introduce my colleague, Vidya Diwaka, who is, has the challenging job of trying to uh, summarize, um, not the whole session that we've had, but at least to highlight two or three points which emerged for her, particularly uh, from the session. And uh, before that, I would just like to thank everybody who has put in questions through the chat uh, I hope that I haven't neglected too many of those, uh, but they've all been very good and very useful. And uh, Vidya, would you like to just make a couple of points before we close? Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew, for sharing and your contributions, and to Olivier, Sonal, and Mike as well for excellent contributions with the Pro Portlands. Um, as Andrew noted, I'll be um, trying to tie some of the high-level messaging into two to three concise um, highlights from the discussion from the enriching discussion so far the first from what we've heard from our speakers today is around the um, impacts of the economic contraction being more important potentially in developing countries recognizing that within each country and in high income low income middle income countries alike it's the poor and the near poor who will likely suffer the most now, these um, people in poverty include chronic, the chronically poor, often at risk of further destitution sometimes, as well as often a large share of the near poor who might be vulnerable to impoverishment in the face of shocks. Now, what are the types of shocks that were discussed? It was largely understood that this is typically a multiple or sequenced shocks, as Andrew mentioned, for example, ill health as a near universal impoverisher, combined with economic shocks, um, rising food prices, as Sonal mentions. Uh, we go the triple threat that um, Mike succinctly communicated, all of which has implications then across the life course. So we heard from Olivier at the start of children in poor households potentially being withdrawn to complement households labor, um, different groups having differential impacts as well. Mike speaking about the informal sector's critical importance, Sonal drawing attention to the plight of migrants, but then also the related um, dimensions that returning migrants have then on the livelihood vulnerability of agricultural laborers as well. So that's the first point in terms of the impacts um, of uh, COVID-19 and the economic crisis as well on people in and near poverty. The second um, emerging point that's, uh, that the speakers excellently alluded to was the need for strengthened social protection, whether this is shock responsive or, um, or extended more generally as a way of cushioning the impact of these crises. And within this discussion, there was largely a recognition, I felt, of the poverty impacts and this discussion of social protection cannot at its core be disentangled from political economy considerations and cannot be disentangled from the larger considerations around fiscal space, particularly in low and often as well in lower middle income countries. And in this regard, we heard uh, a view uh, from Olivier that this crucial investment into social protection is not should not necessarily be thought of as money spent, but rather money invested for human capital and building resilience, thus with its transformative potential. 
And then this brings me to my final point that um, I summarized from our speakers today, which is that the international research and donor community needs creative responses. On the data front, this might be through repurposing existing surveys in order to um, reach out to people for immediate data monitoring, as well as understanding the needs and coping strategies over the longer term as well. And here the importance came up about the need for longitudinal data but then also the conceptual uh, creative responses that are needed in terms of rethinking what it is that we want out of social protection, what we desire um, in terms of how, what resilience means for our societies, and really to put the ecological impact at the heart um, in order to emphasize green equitable transitions. And finally, it is in this context then that uh, the Chronic Poverty Advisory Network has launched the Poverty Monitoring Initiative at this forum um, through, as Andrew describes, comprising uh, interviews of Sentinel households, rapid data analysis, engagement with policymakers and so forth, um, with the hope to expand it in up to 10 countries to better understand the situation of people in poverty in the context of COVID-19, and in order to, at its core, develop appropriate policy responses to promote what was categorized uh, from what we heard today into relief, recovery, and resilience in a way that's ultimately quite sensitive to the localized needs of people in poverty. Thank you. Lydia, thank you very much indeed. And thank you very much to all our panelists, uh, Olivia, Sonal, and Mike. And thank you also to the audience for staying with us and uh, putting in very good questions. And we look forward to collaborating with all of you again uh, in future. Thank you very much and uh, goodbye for today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.